Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Los 102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. A new book that's came out just in March here, and it's Soldiers, or Soldier, Sailor, uh, Frogman, Spy, Airman, Gangster, Kill or Die, and it's how the Allies won on D-Day. Um, so joining us is uh, Jill's. Milton, thank you for being here. Dio. You're going to have to get this right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, welcome, Giles. Well, thank you very much. No one can, no one can pronounce my name. It's Giles, but I'll go, I'll go with anything you want to call me. Well, you know, the French-Canadian, I just want to go Gil. <laughs> Giles, do not let him get away with this. Giles, I'll see what we, I can do. We have, to, we have to get that right. Now, um, uh, so what brought you to writing about this subject and about D-Day, uh, World War II, and, and actually putting all the time and, and work into writing this book? Like, what, what led you to yeah. Well, uh, when I was previously working as a journalist, I covered every 10th uh, anniversary of D-Day. And I first covered one it, it in 1994, which was, of course, the 50th anniversary. And my newspaper sent me out to Normandy to meet and interview um, members of the, the French resistance who were really helping the Allies um, in the, the planning of D-Day by spying on the Germans, the German defense on the coastline. So I met some, a, a wonderful cast of characters, really sort of larger-than-life personalities, who played a really critical role and have, have never really been written about at all. And so I think that's what first got me going. And of course, this year being the 75th anniversary, I thought this would be a great time to really step back from the, um, the history of it and, and look at the individuals, the young soldiers who were sent ashore, you know, 17, 18 years old, on the 6th of June, 1944, sent ashore into the German gunfire and see what they actually achieved, what they did on that day. So you say 75 years. Um, how many people are still around from this um, D-Day? Because 75 years, they've got to be in their 90s. Yeah, there are. Amazingly, there's quite a few still left. I mean, still alive. There's, there are about 300 sailing from Britain to Normandy um, for the celebrations on the 6th of June. And I think there are even more coming from America. So they're all in their 90s. And in fact, I was in Normandy just last week, and we took a 93-year-old back to Gold Beach, one of the, one of the landing beaches, um, to where he landed there um, at dawn on the 6th of June. 
extraordinary to take him back there and he was describing he remembered everything what it was like to land under german machine gun fire you know his best friend died in his arms at the top of the beach he lived through a nightmare and he said on that beach he said you know this has been with me every day of my life yeah, quite, it's quite an event. Uh, I think that uh, a thing, you know, I noticed in, in when I'm in the UK a lot, you, you, know, you guys have a lot of uh, television and programs about the war and about history. Um, when you come to North America, especially in the States, there's very little. You know, there's particular shows or movies, but it's not like, it's not the same thing. And I think a lot of younger people um, have quite a distance between... I mean, if you're born in the, the 90s or 2000 and you're 20 or so, you, you don't really have a connection to World War II like perhaps some of us did. Well, that's um, so true. I mean, and also, you know, for, for a lot of us Brits, it was, it was pretty close to home. So my mother lived in southeast London, which was heavily bombed throughout the war. And, her, her, you know, the first sort of 10 years of her life, was just um, endless bombing raids going down into the into the subway to get away from it and and so she she really lived through that and I guess you know your parents pass it on so that was part of my childhood was just hearing about the war and how awful it was yeah yeah and I in growing up in in Canada as young all we had was a British television show and a CBC and it, it was all world at war and, and Remembrance Day and all that sort of stuff so it, it had an impact on me um, I just wonder, um, people. I don't think that the people realize how tough it really was. And and on the UK, you didn't have like you guys were on rations, and and during that time, it was really a tough time for people to live. Yeah, I mean the food. Uh, you know, my mother talking about the the lack of food. They were constantly hungry and by the end of the war my grandmother who obviously tried to save everything for the children um, was just uh, almost a skeleton at the end of the war it, Britain was was um, incredibly impoverished um, it was the population was half starving and it was in a really bad way and what's absolutely fascinating is when you read the British accounts of the the American GIs coming over in preparation for D-Day they just couldn't believe how well equipped how well clothed how much food they brought with them. It just seemed like they, they were just, they had luxuries sort of pouring out of every pocket. And, and there are so many accounts of this sort of amazement when these, these, these well-equipped Americans arrive in Britain, you know, in 43, 44. Hi, um, hi Giles, it's, it's me. But when um, I was just listening to your account of your mother, and yeah. my grandmother spent vast amounts of time in Chislehurst tunnels, uh, right. Again, you know, with with um, you know, escaping the bombing in Kent, and uh, we, we've we've been a military family, so attending mm -hmm. uh, many of the remembrance services uh, that have been held over over some years, and uh, I was just I suppose interested in in the point that Al made that uh, less and less people are aware of of what life was like, and I think there is an element of that, but I also think there's a lot of people that keep memories alive. And um, you see more and more young people taking part now in the remembrance services. So we yes. have all of our Boy Scouts, our Girl Guides, our Brownie groups, our you know youth groups, uh, including the um, the forces uh, youth groups. And uh, so I think it's, it's something that we try to keep alive, isn't it? But but it's it's really hard to help very privileged children nowadays understand what it's like to live through a war zone. I think that's very much, that's very true. Um, but I also think there's a, there becomes a shift when, when the generation who fought in the war finally pass away. So we had this um, not that long ago with the First World War when the last soldier who fought in the First World War died. And really, suddenly, the First World War really enters the history books then. And, you know, we're not far off um, from that with D-Day. Um, like Al said, you know, the, the veterans are all in their 90s. And it Absolutely. will not be very long before... D-Day and the Second World War has also passed into history, and, and it becomes a different, um, uh, more, more difficult, I think, to keep um, the, 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 all of that alive when there are no survivors left to tell the tales. Because then I guess we enter into the realms of where remembering memories, and that's it, much more difficult to keep it raw and alive and real, isn't it? 
I think it is. And, and I suppose the difference, there is a difference between Britain, of course, and the States, whereas, the, you know, like you're saying, you know, Britain, London, the southeast of England particularly, was, was seriously badly hit by German bombing raids. And, you know, my mother used to be able to, um, she used to do the noises of the V1 rockets coming over and the V2 rockets coming over. And, and you know, these terrifying sounds that haunted her childhood. Um, so, you know, a lot of people really had a vivid experience, a very unpleasant experience of the war, which I suppose never really happened in North America. So for the purposes of our American friends, um, because predominantly, you know, we have an American audience, how mm. did, uh, from uh, history, how did it all begin? What was life like from, you know, being a family living in London one day to the change that was the war the next day? Well, of course, war was declared in 1939, but the actual, there was this thing called the, in fact, it was labelled by an American politician, the phony war, when nothing much happened for quite a long time. And it wasn't until the spring of 1940, May 1940, when Hitler invaded, uh, you know, Holland, Belgium and France. And suddenly things get really serious because Churchill, who becomes prime minister at exactly this time, he knows that Hitler is intending to invade Great Britain. Operation Sea Lion was the German uh, code name for the invasion of Great Britain. And suddenly, and uh, I, I read an account of Hitler, uh, uh, sorry, of, of Churchill speaking to Roosevelt and saying, we're expecting the invasion any day now. And suddenly Britain, which was completely ill-equipped to fight against this huge sort of uh, Nazi army, suddenly finds itself in, in desperate trouble. And there was a big question is, you know, was, will America, is it going to support uh, Britain? And how is it going to do so? Uh, at the beginning, it was very, uh, the support was um, not very visible, but obviously gradually as the war came, um, went on, and of course then America entered the war, everything changes. Churchill's great plan was to get America to fight in Europe and not initially to fight in the Far East. Um, and that was probably his great triumph uh, of politics, was to persuade the Americans to do that. And, and that leads all the way through, really, to D-Day in 1944. And, and, of course, recently there's been um, numerous films made about Churchill's life, depicting him in many ways, and very powerful films, actually. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of them have been really, really brilliant. I mean, one of the best portrayals of Churchill, I think, was in The Crown, which I know has been incredibly popular in America. Um, another, uh, another great portrayal was um, Darkest Hour, where Gary Oldman played Churchill brilliantly again. I mean, there was one ridiculous scene, of course, which was Churchill traveling on the, on the, on the metro, on the, on the subway, the London subway, which, of course, Churchill, you know, from a very privileged background, he never, ever in his life took public transport. Um, and so there was a slightly ridiculous scene. But, you know, it worked in terms of the film. And, and generally, the film, I thought, was, was, was an excellent portrayal of this figure who really pulled a desperate, um, you know, impoverished and half-starved country through the war. I remember attending the Step Short Parade in Folkestone a few years ago and, mm. um, and um, just understanding that these very young and influential young men were, were marched to the top of the hill. And then as they, and they were full of hope, full of life, um, ready to go and fight for their country. And walking down that hill where the step short um, command was given and um, watching people come back, you know, critically wounded and, you know, the morale being so low and, and much fewer people coming back up that hill than went down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really, well, and it really struck, you know, an emotional, um, you know, chord within me, just imagining these very young men. Just, just full of hope and wanting to go and fight. They were keen. Many of them really wanted to go and support the country. I know. When, when you see the photos of some of these, you know, they look like school kids. Well, I, I guess a lot of them actually were. They were 17. And, you know, uh, Al mentioned, you know, Canada there. Of course, the Canadians were all volunteers. There, were no, there was no conscription. So, you know, uh, the entire uh, assault force on D-Day that landed on Juneau Beach was um, entirely a volunteer force. Quite extraordinary, really. Well, how many, how many actually um, were involved in the battle? And how many people did we lose? Like, how many people on, even on both sides? 
Yeah, so um, on D-Day itself, the plan, which was uh, successful, was to land 156,000 men on D-Day, on the 6th of June. And they were to be followed over the next sort of month, month and a half, by two million more men. So um, it's massive uh, amounts of... Uh, you know, this, was, this was on a scale, a seaborne invasion, on a scale that had never been done before in the history of warfare. It involved 7,000 ships, 12,000 um, planes, you know, enormous numbers of paratroopers. Uh, 13,000 American paratroopers dropped into Normandy that night. Um, the casualty rate um, was, it was large, but it was not as um, horrific as some of the planners had thought. There were about 10,000 casualties on D-Day. That was on the Allied side. That's um, killed and wounded. German casualties, we really don't know. There are no accurate figures at all. The estimates have been between 4,000 and 10,000, which is such a divergence. It's you know, um, a bit pointless, really. The, the casualties that never get mentioned, and which I wanted to talk about a little bit in my book, was um, the French civilians, because... You've got to remember that coast of Normandy is dotted with little seaside fishing villages and, and no one had left their homes. They were all their families, you know, housewives, children, whatever. They were all there and they found themselves on the, on the 6th of June under the heaviest naval bombardment ever. And so they suffered enormous casualties and it is possible that, the, in fact, more French civilians died on D-Day than troops from all the other nations put together. But we'll probably never know that for sure. Yeah, I, I, I guess that they would have no idea. It's not like they were going to promote when they were doing this. So, No, it was literally um, about half an hour before the bombardment started. The Allied planes dropped leaflets from the sky just saying, get out of your homes, get into the fields, just get away from the coast. But, of course, you know, it was just far too late by then. So, um, so sadly, tragically, you know, an awful lot of uh, people lost their lives because of that. Now, your, your title's very interesting. Um, how did you come up with the title? Like, what made you choose those words? <laughs> well, I've got to be completely honest here. My, the British title, the title of the British edition is simply D-Day, The Soldier's Story. And when I was, last, when I was in New York, um, I had a meeting with um, the sort of senior people from Barnes & Noble, and they said, no, come on, your book's full of just a bit, all these amazing characters. Can't you get that across in the title? So I thought, well, we could, I almost suggested as a joke, we, I said we could go wild and just put some of these, you know, put them on the title, these uh, soldier, sailor, frog, spy, you know, let's put them all in. And they just said, oh, that's great, that really works. <laughs> so, so that's how it came about. <laughs> oh, yeah, over, over, a, over a long lunch in New York, a, a long and very nice convivial lunch in New York, yes, we said. Yeah, there must have been some martinis in there, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's, that's, um, so you really approached the story from people, uh, people's own specific uh, memories of it, don't you? Yeah, I, the entire book is drawn from um, original accounts, testimonies, interviews, diary extracts, letters, uh, etc. So it, this involved a lot of research uh, in, in quite a few different countries. Um, so obviously America, but in Germany, in France as well, and in my own country, in Britain. But in America, the archives were absolutely brilliant. Because although you said, you know, a lot of people don't have much... Um, they often don't know a lot about the war. Um, down in uh, New Orleans, you've got the Second World War, National Second World War Museum. And it's in, not only is it enormous, but it's absolutely brilliant. And they have all the archives um, from uh, D-Day there. So I was able to read, you know, the accounts of the men who landed in the first wave on Omaha Beach, on Utah, Utah Beach. Just, it's just amazing when you read these, these, uh, these accounts. And the other place I went to in America, which was great, was um, in Ohio, is the Cornelius Ryan archive. Now, some of your listeners will know that he wrote The Longest Day, which was you know, a huge bestseller in the 50s, and then became a big Hollywood movie. Cornelius Ryan interviewed um, hundreds, if not thousands, of veterans, and many of the accounts were never used in his book, because actually his book is, is very short. And so I had that full access to all of these accounts from not just Americans, but he interviewed a lot of Germans as well, because I wanted to include the German side of the story in my book. Um, and so that was just fascinating, again, to read 
the Germans who suddenly realize, you know, on the night of the 6th of, 5th, 6th of June, they suddenly realize, my God, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And it's now happening. And the, the absolute panic that took place, you know, amidst the German ranks. So, you know, to look at these original sources is, is a real eye-opener. You, you get the full sort of horror and color of what it was like. And, and, and so when you, when you talk about that and when you see these, these um, testimonies, so to speak, written by people, um, what, what, what was their thought on, on death? Was, did, and I mean that in a sense of were they, were they really um, thinking they were, like what was their thought process? Were they thinking this is it, uh, I'll probably won't see tomorrow type thing? Was it kind of a... It was, very, it, it was very emotional. There was, there were the, the battle speeches by the commanders to try and, you know, get, pump up the men and everything. Um, but once they set sail, and, and you've got to remember, of course, the, the night of the 5th, 6th June was one of the stormiest nights in the English Channel that, for, for, for years. It was absolutely atrocious weather. So within an hour or so of setting sail, most of the men were violently seasick and feeling absolutely terrible, which did very little to, to boost yeah. their mood as they were go, you know, preparing to go into battle. They wrote letters to their loved ones. They told their friends what to say to their wives and their girlfriends if they didn't make it back. It was a really emotional time, and uh, you know, a, a lot of them really thought they were not going to pull through. Um, what was going to be, they knew, a very tough assignment. Because, you know, to send infantry onto a shore, which is heavily defended with machine guns and shells and, and mortar shells, God knows what, um, you know, they, they, they really thought they, were, they weren't going to come through. So, um, yeah, it, you, you can feel the raw emotion in many of the accounts uh, that they left, you know, that they wrote down. So, so was this battle really going to be the one that, won or lost it for the Allies? This battle, D-Day itself, that one day, 6th of June, 44, was absolutely crucial, a crucial turning point in the Second World War because um, if the Allies succeeded in landing and creating a beachhead in, in northern France, it was almost certain that they would win the Second World War. Even Rommel, who was in charge of the German army in France, even he said that if the um, Allies carve out a beachhead, they're going to win the war. Because by carving out that beachhead, they can then land enormous amounts of material and, and, and men and simply drive forwards across France and into Germany. So Rommel understood that the stakes were absolutely uh, you know, at their very, very highest. But it should be said, you know, if the Allies had failed on D-Day, if they'd been pushed back into the sea, it would have been a complete catastrophe because who knows when they could have launched another invasion. It probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been for another year. They would have lost all elements of surprise. And don't forget, the, the Soviet Red Army was advancing from the east as well and making really rapid progress. So who knows what the shape of Europe would have been, you know, had... D-Day not been a success. I mean, the, the, the Soviets might have overrun most of Europe by, by that point, by the time they could have launched another invasion. So, critical times. Um, famously, Eisenhower wrote two messages to be broadcast, or one of which was to be broadcast at the end of the 6th of June. One of them said, the landings have been a success. Our lads have, uh, have succeeded in creating a beachhead. And the other, which thankfully was never used, said, our landings have failed, the responsibility is mine alone, um, and, and, you know, admitting defeat. That one, that message, happily remained in his jacket pocket, um, and he was able to proclaim that they had been a success. But yes, this was a high-stakes game, and everyone knew it. Now, so, so the movie um, uh, Saving, Saving Private Ryan, that's probably uh, one of the most popular... The beginning part with the battle when they're landing and all the people that got killed, do you find that a pretty accurate depiction? Yes and no. In fact, when in the film, uh, and a lot of people have said, God, it really shows you the horrors of war. And in the film, they come ashore, the American troops come ashore into a maelstrom of gunfire and God knows what. It's absolutely murderous. In fact, the reality was slightly different. The very first landing craft to um, land on Omaha Beach, they landed in almost, into almost silence. 
It was a sort of deathly hush on the beach. They clambered ashore. Um, the, the, landing, the, the, the man in charge of the landing, the flotilla, ra- radioed back to the, she- the big fleet anchored offshore and said that they have landed safely on Omaha Beach. And it was only once they were on the beach, completely exposed, that suddenly the, mach- the German machine gun fire opened up. So, and, and then the massacre began. So, in essence, Saving Private Ryan got it right. But in, in detail, it was slightly different from how it's portrayed. Wow. Is there a particular a, a film depiction that you would, be, you would deem the most accurate, Giles? Um, it's difficult. I think... Uh, I, I mean, I would probably go with Saving Private Ryan because it does, it does bring across the, just the horrors. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Of what it was like to land in the first wave. And, and, you know, I read so many accounts. I mean, unfortunately, most who did land in the first wave didn't didn't survive. But I think it brings out the... um, just the level of carnage um, that there was. But it should be remembered, of course, that Omaha Beach was, of course, you know, the worst beach of all, um, forever afterwards um, known as Bloody Omaha because it was so horrendous. But other beaches were relatively, um, relatively light casualties. I mean, Utah Beach, another American landing beach, this is an extraordinary fact. More servicemen were killed in the practice for, D, for Utah, the landing on Utah Beach, which took place in the west of England, more were killed in the practice run than were killed in the actual landings. Um, so, you know, not, not, every, um, not every beach was the same by any stretch of the imagination, and uh, Utah was probably one of the easiest of the five beaches that uh, the men landed on that day. I was just having a look, actually, at some of the figures in terms of the landings, and uh, in, I was looking at the Imperial War Museum's figures, yeah. And it talks about, um, you know, across the beaches, less than a week later, on June the 11th, the beach is fully secured. And just to get some sort of um, idea of scale here, 326,000 troops, more than 50,000 vehicles and 100,000 tons of equipment had landed within one week. That is massive, isn't it? It's absolutely enormous. And as I said, that, that figure of men, right, it rises to 2 million very soon afterwards. Yeah. Now, 
One of the most um, amazing stories about D-Day is the problem that the Allies faced is they were not going to be able to capture a big port or a big harbour on D-Day, and they really needed a big harbour to land all this stuff. So what did they do? They had a rather brilliant idea. They decided to tow one over from England. In fact, tow two over from England. They built these enormous floating concrete harbours, these sort of enormous concrete caissons, which they towed over, and then these were all linked together when they were brought um, to the shore of Normandy, and they created these massive, um, these massive harbours that enabled them to land all the stuff, and they, they called the Mulberry Harbours, and, and um, you know, as I said, I was in Normandy last week, it's quite amazing, because they were designed to last a couple of months, there's still quite a lot of the bits of the uh, harbour, these floating concrete caissons, are still there in the sea. They're still wow. afloat. So 75 years on, it's quite extraordinary. I was going to say, now, now that the landing and the beach fight was, was one aspect, but then they still had to go on land and, and clear a lot of the towns. Um, that must have been pretty... That would have been just as difficult, if not more, in a different way, right? It was really, really tough. I mean, the, the target for D-Day was wildly ambitious. You know, they were meant to capture the city of Bayeux. They were meant to capture the city of Caen. Um, these were, they were never going to be able to do this. Um, in fact, Caen wasn't captured for many, many weeks after D-Day. And it's only a few miles inland from the coast. But what happened, you see, on D-Day that slowed everything down was that shortly in the afternoon of D-Day, the German panzer divisions got on the move and they started to counterattack. Um, if, if they had attacked when the Allies started landing at, at, at dawn on D-Day, they could have caused absolute mayhem. But Hitler did not sanction them to go into action until noon, and they didn't actually get into action until later in the afternoon, which meant that the Allies at least managed to get a toehold on the land um, before the counterattack came from the Germans. But had, had they not counterattacked, they would have made much greater progress in land. But I think the furthest any Allied soldier got in land was about seven miles from the coast. So it was a pretty precarious toehold they had by the end of that day. And on Omaha, which, uh, you know, as we've been saying, was, was a really tough uh, battle to get, even to get ashore. By the end of the day, they were only 2,000 yards inland, so really just clinging on to, the, uh, to their little beachhead. I was, um, sorry, I was just, I was no. just interested in, um, I work in a field where a lot of um, investigations have got operational names, and um, this is no, there's no different. The military use operational names for um, many of their um, assaults, investigations, or interventions in any way. Mm. And so for D-Day, we had Operation Overlord, which was yep. the Allied invasion. That then turns into Operation Neptune, which becomes the assault phase and landing troops. And then the Battle of Normandy, which is then kind of from, from that point onwards. Yes, there were, there were distinct elements, absolutely, to, to, the, to the operation. Yeah, and they were broken down and very carefully planned, all of them, yeah. And... In terms of those, um, the planning, um, you know, in films we see that as in their kind of underground bunkers and, and, and um, you know, Churchill making these plans with his, uh, with his very you know, close acquaintances and colleagues. Do, we, does that, do you think that's, that's, a, that's a real, that's a fair depiction? It was kind of really kind of cloak and dagger stuff and, and, and planned in quite that meticulous way? Or do you think sometimes this was more about reactions because of the, uh, the, the, just the nature of what they were, were challenged by? Well, no, you can, you can still see, I mean, they still exist, the plans for D-Day, and they were absolutely extraordinary. Every single minute is accounted for. Which, wow. which regiment would, would land where? It is unbelievably detailed. But the one major problem that occurred on D-Day is that, you know, um, the, the plans went wrong almost um, before the troops had landed on the beaches. Um, everything went wrong. The timings went wrong. The, the tides um, and the strong currents pushed men into, pushed the boats into places they weren't meant to land at. Um, the, the, there was a huge reliance on, on um, uh, telecommunications, wireless communications, and of course all the equipment got wrecked in the, uh, in the salt water, so there were no communications. 
everything went wrong. I mean, there's a, it's an old sort of adage that, you know, everything goes wrong on contact with the enemy, and that certainly happened on D-Day. So despite, although they had this incredibly well-planned operation, nothing actually went according to plan on the day, which meant that um, the fate of D-Day, and this is really the point of my book, is the fate of D-Day was in the hands of the, those um, young men who landed, uh, you know, in the first few hours of that day. They had to basically um, take the initiative and, and try and win victory um, when everything, all the plans they, they trained by had gone wrong. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to just talk and capture a little bit about the psychological impact of war and, um, and leading then into the differences today um, or mm -hmm. perception of difference. Because at that time, we, we, we have all, if we look back, we can look back quite fondly at some of the uh, music from Dame Vera and yep. how that was rallying the troops and, and really rallying those left behind to have faith in their men, to, to wave them goodbye with a smile and welcome them back when they come back. But the, the emotional impact on families was, you know, all of these young guys, all of these men were just going to vanish leaving a, a population of many women um, trying to kind of hold the reins, um, then them being drafted into the workforce and the sociological aspects of change that that happened in terms of our views on childcare and, and uh, what children need, that the political agenda changed to um, allow that to happen, if you like. Yes. So, you know... And, and now we're in a situation, you know, and, and I've heard this said, I'm not saying this is my view, where we've had men go to war and we are now more aware of the emotional trauma. We have PTSD. We have a, we have a diagnosis, something that we can say this is the cause and this is how it's helped. Um, how, how do you make sense of that, given all of those things that those individuals suffered in World War I and II? and the complete lack of understanding and recognition about what they may have gone through. Yeah, well, you know, just having talked to this chap, um, this old soldier, um, Harry Bellinge, um, which we, who we took back to Gold Beach the other day, he, um, he, he landed under heavy gunfire. His best friend was um, killed uh, very close to the beach, died in his arms. He then fought his way through France, he, he, and he fought for the next few months, and eventually he simply collapsed of, of nervous fatigue, of, of exhaustion, a condition that was completely um, not, not taken seriously at all. He was taken back to England, and by the time he recovered, the war was over. But he said to me, you know, there was no support at all uh, for this post-traumatic stress, and, you know, we hear about it all the time now, soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and everything. There was simply no support. It was just... It was the sort of the British, you know, stiff upper lip mentality, you know, get a grip on it, man, and uh, pull yourself together, have a nice cup of tea. Um, and, and, and so it was really awful for them. And, they had, and, and they've had to live with that for the rest of their lives. And I think um, from what I've read, I'd say that sort of 95% of those who landed um, on D-Day and afterwards were absolutely terrified out of their brains. Yeah. And, and there were about 5%. For them, it was the time of their lives. Um, they, they were suddenly found themselves equipped with heavy weaponry. They could kill anyone they wanted. They could cause mayhem. There were no rules. And they loved it. Um, but that was very, very much the exception to the rule. Most of them were very, very scared indeed. And I, I think, um, you know... I've heard it said now, you know, about uh, you know, current resources and support that goes to our military uh, personnel now. And I've heard people say, well, what's all this need now? Why do we need all this now? There were people in, in World War II that didn't get this stuff. They manned up. They were okay. But, of course, it's now about our recognition. And, and those people in World War II were deeply infected and impacted um, throughout their whole lives. You know, people don't retain that detail of memory throughout their whole lives about events unless it's a, a very significant and traumatic injury. Um, yeah, well, so, and we just didn't recognise it, did we, at the time? It was, it, was, it was, as you said, that stiff upper lip. Yep, I mean, um, um, Harry said to me uh, he had the images and the sounds in his mind, in his head every single day of his life. So he's had to live with that ever since 1944, you know, and, and he is by no means alone. That, that is what most of those young men had to go through. And, um, but yeah, horrific, really, uh, with, with no backup and no support. 
And how did it impact, do you think? I mean, we know that uh, on, on those left behind and the children who were evacuated, were you able to, through the survivors of World War II, have, um, get some insight into how they managed their families separating and, and then the trauma that that impacted upon the children? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, what, what we tend to forget is because, you know, we focus on D-Day and certainly the 75th in that coming up very soon will focus on the day itself. But uh, we kind of forget that these men were away for absolutely ages. They were away for months and months on end. So it, it led to very fragmented uh, family lives, you know, relationships ended, particularly in times yeah. of great emotional stress, relationships just fell apart. Um, you know, often children had been sent off into the countryside, children from cities anyway, to, to where they were slightly safer, but it meant they didn't see their, their parents for, not only they didn't see their father, but they didn't see their mother for, for months on end as well. So an extraordinary sort of social impact uh, on, on, on family life. And like you said as well, for, for women as well, it, women's roles completely changed in, this, in a very short space of time. You know, the traditional role of the woman, the, the housewife at home doing the cooking and the shopping, etc. Suddenly, these women were working massively long shifts in factories, building weapons and playing an absolutely crucial role in the war. So it, it, I think after the war, it was very difficult. Things couldn't go back to how they were. It was just, it, it had been such a profound social upheaval for people and of course in the south of England for all the uh, Brits in the south of England to see this huge influx of Americans who had a completely different way of life or a different way mm -hmm. of looking at things it was you know a, a remarkable and radical change I think and alongside that we saw also I, mean, I, I, I work in, in with children and we saw the uh, to allow those things to happen we saw the different research about attachment for children with their parents should do they have to be with mother of course they don't have to be which allow women to go out to work it almost gave them permission that their child wouldn't suffer if they were able to leave them and then we saw people coming back and they wanted their jobs back so yeah. then pendulum swung again and it's it when you're looking at it in a much broader sense the impact of, of, across the nations, and, and plural, um, was horrific. Yes. And, uh, you know, in, in my previous, I wrote a previous book about um, guerrilla warfare and sabotage in the Second World War, and women played a very key role in, in special operations and, and the SOE, the special operations executive that Churchill set up. And one of the key women was called Joan Bright, and she ended up really being a sort of PA to a personal assistant to Churchill. And she actually says at one point, and it's very interesting, she said, I saw myself as being in the vanguard of a feminist revolution. So she very much saw this as a turning point, as a landmark moment for women and women's lives and how that it was never going to be the same again. And she went on, like so many who worked in special operations and, and who worked in Bletchley Park, the great, you know, eavesdropping centre, coat-breaking centre. And they, they went on to play major roles and, and have powerful jobs um, for the rest of their lives. So for some people, it really was, a, you know, it was a turning point. And we saw that in the recent film with um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in the imitation game where, we sp where they, they cracked the Enigma code. And, and where... Um, you know, a female was appointed into a, 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 a place of, you know, research and maths and, and, and then very early computer science that mm. would never have happened before. And she had to no. tell her parents that she was going to do other, other activities. She couldn't possibly have uh, been working with these men in this room. It'd be completely inappropriate. I know, it's extraordinary. And the, the funny thing, I mean, it, it's funny now is that um, a lot of these women, they, uh, they, they all had to sign the Official Secrets Act. And they considered that because they signed that, they could never talk about what they'd done during the war until their dying days. And many of them never spoke about it because, no, well, they'd signed the Official Secrets Act. Happily, there were a few who, who broke out of that and did tell their stories, which enables us to piece together the extraordinary work they did at Bletchley Park and it should be said many many other places as well um, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah they, they, uh, they, were, they did play a really crucial role uh, and it really ought to be written about more actually I mean I, I for one certainly don't feel that, I mean when I was at school um, there was no, nothing in our history lessons about World War 2 or 1 um, mm. And I, I've, you know, all of my learning in that has been through my own parents and throughout throughout our adult lives. 
So yeah. um, I definitely think there should be a, a lot more teachings around, you know, where we've come from and what we owe others in terms of sacrifice. Um, but also understanding the bigger impact on society and how we've evolved as a result of our freedom from that war. It's, yeah. um, it's astounding, really. Really astounding. I think also you get very different narratives. You know, if you read a, a British history of D-Day, they tend to be very much from the British perspective, and the Americans hardly get mentioned. And likewise, if you read American histories of D-Day, like sort of by Stephen Ambrose, is a you know famous writer, um, he hardly mentions the British. And and I, I felt this was completely unfair uh, on on the actual on how D-Day panned out, because of course it was a an amazing international operation, and. Um, you know, I'm, we've talked about the, the first wave of men landing on uh, um, Omaha Beach, which was the American beach. But in fact, the man that led these troops to the beach was actually a British, he was a Royal Navy uh, guy. So there was a lot of crossover, and I think it's important to, to rem remember that it was the Brits, the Americans, the Canadians, but also uh, the French, the Czechs, the Poles, the Norwegians, all of these nations played a part in D-Day, and, um, and that really does get written out of the story. Did you, have, did you have any surprises, like when you were doing the research and reading and going through to do your book, were there any points where you were sort of surprised by something you learned? I think some of the, the surprise was perhaps just when, the, the, when I mentioned that 5% um, were kind of adventurers who actually um, took some enjoyment in, in, the, in the thrill of war. So one of the great stories of D-Day is the story of the rangers climbing up Pointe du Oc, this amazing operation where they had to scale the cliffs. And these James Rudder's rangers, as they were known, um, they really... Um, they trained for this moment. They were looking forward to it. Uh, they, they were, a lot of them were from fairly um, rough, sort of gangster-like families um, from, from various inner cities in America. And um, they, were, they were heavily armed, and they were, had, kind of, to use the cliché term, licensed to kill. And they just wanted to get on with it, and they wanted to prove that they could be, as a band of men, they could outdo anything that the Germans could do. So you get that with the Americans at Pointe du Hoc with the Rangers, and you get it with the British commandos as well, who likewise felt that they were an elite band and they wanted to live up to every sort of inch of that eliteness. Um, and so that, that, that sort of took me quite by, by surprise, because I was sort of expecting the, the obvious narrative of everyone's you know, absolutely terrified. But um, for some of them, no, they really saw this as, a, as an opportunity just to go for it, and, and, and boy, did they. <laughs> And from and when you were reading the the German um, fighters' um, memoirs and stuff, uh, what was their point of view in general? Like, what what was the thought on their side? Well, there's two very different points of view depending on which accounts you read. So, if you take the elite, the specialist SS Panzer Panzer divisions, the Panzer soldiers. Um, they were highly trained. They fought on the Eastern Front. They knew what they were doing, and they kind of relished the fight ahead. Um, it was a very, very different story for the young conscripts, 17 years old, 18 years old, on the beaches, in the bunkers. They were the ones going to be confronting or, or meeting head-on the Americans, the Brits, the Canadians coming ashore. And, um, you know, I read some very, very poignant accounts. One chap, Carl Wegner, he was stationed on Omaha Beach, and he describes the absolute terror when he looks out through the, through the aperture of his concrete bunker and he sees wave after wave after wave of American landing craft coming into Omaha Beach and he's so terrified, so frozen in panic that he can't even fire his gun and he describes how his, his commanding officer has to smash him over the head, over his helmet with his pistol butt to sort of bring him back to life and, and, and get him to fire his gun at the American troops landing. So... You know, it was not uh, a pleasant experience for those troops. They were very similar to the Allies in the sense that they, were, they didn't want to be there. They were unwilling conscripts, and they had a very, very profound fear that they were going to be killed um, as, the, as the Allied troops came ashore. And I think it's really important to get the two, you know, those, those two voices across um, that, uh, and that the Germans, many of the Germans, were not that different from many of the Americans and many of the Brits. They did want to be there. Hmm. And, and so what do, you, what do you hope people get out of reading your book? What, what do you want them to take away? 
Well, you know what? I, what I wanted to do was give voice to the voiceless, if you like, the voices that have never been heard. So much has been written about D-Day. There are endless books. And many of the, the sort of first-hand accounts are written by the generals, the officer class, those who planned D-Day, um, and those who often were not there on D-Day. What I wanted to do is tell the story of those who were there in the, front, in, in the first wave, who really uh, D-Day was going to be won or lost by them. And um, a lot of them felt at the end of the war that they felt slightly bitter about the fact that they, their roles had been completely written out of the story. And so I suppose one of the aims of my book is to give voice to, to those young lads, basically. Fascinating. Great book. Um, do you have a website or anything, any information that you'd like to give out to the listeners if they want to uh, find you or contact you or maybe pass on some information? Absolutely. I'd love to hear from anyone. My website is very simple. It's www.gilesmilton.com. Um, and if they want to uh, check me out on Twitter, I'm at GilesMilton1. And I've been putting a lot of stuff on D-Day, uh, out about D-Day recently. I, and I've been doing a lot of broadcast and, and uh, a lot of articles. And they'll find that all on my Twitter, uh, Twitter handle. Fantastic. And we're going to have it on our website as well. So the listeners that um, want to pick up the book, just one click away from the player there, you'll see it right below it. Um, fantastic. Well, again, it's been a real pleasure um, having you on, uh, Giles. And, uh, well, I, I'm um, delighted. That it's really kind of you to have me on. It's, uh, it's always great to talk about these, uh, these, these little known stories, you know, and, 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 and make sure that people know just what those young men did on the beach that day. Yeah, I think it's very important. We like to uh, cover a lot of history on the show, and, and uh, I, I, I don't see it enough, especially over here. So it's uh, fascinating to have you, and thank you. Well, thank you very much as well. Thanks. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.